Like a deer in the headlights or gum in your hair, what got you here will not get you there. Join us as business owners get unstuck in real time on the business building struggles we all share. Welcome to the Business Breakthrough Podcast. And here's your host, Esty Rand. Welcome to episode 84 of the Business Breakthrough Podcast. I'm super excited for my guest today. I've been following him around LinkedIn for a long time. Kurt Mercadante, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. It's my pleasure. I'm very excited. So guys, just a little bit about Kurt. He's an international speaker, trainer, author, and disruptive entrepreneur whose mission is to save the world by helping people fight for freedom and fulfillment. He's also the author of Five Pillars of the Freedom Lifestyle. His speechings, speeches, I tried to say speeches and training at the same time we got speeching. <laughs> His speeches and training empower individuals to live their freedom lifestyle, and he also hosts the hosts, the popular Freedom Club. Guys, I'm so excited. I literally am tripping over my words to introduce this guy to you. Can you believe it? Hosts the popular Freedom Club podcast, raised in the Chicago area. He and his wife, Julie, now live in Charleston, South Carolina with their four children when they aren't traveling the world. This sounds like fun. I think we all want a little bit of this freedom stuff. Kurt is a diehard fan of the White Sox, a superhero nerd, and can frequently be found at his local boxing gym. So a perfect bio. Makes you look cool, tell stuff about you, makes us all want to be you. We're in. Full of lies, <laughs> all lies. <No. laughs> I appreciate that it wasn't full of like, and he is the winner of the 2016 this featured in 15 different places that no one's ever heard of and like, or have heard of. Because um, I, I often sometimes skip those. <laughs> <laughs> right. I like that it tells us about you and still leaves a lot for us to explore. Sure. So, sure. It sounds like you practice what you preach, you live a freedom lifestyle, you teach a freedom lifestyle. Um, before we kick off, I wanna hear more about the journey. What's been your favorite freedom moment? Um, the travel, and I'm trying to think if it's, you know, so my wife and I were engaged on the fake Grand Canal at the Venetian Resort in Vegas, right? And at the time, um, it was it was right before I had started my agency and started making a lot of money. And we said at the time, well, you know what? We're gonna get married. And then like the year after that, we're going to the real canal in Venice. We're gonna go. Started my business, started making seven figures, never had enough money to travel. We gotta make the next 10,000. We gotta put the next 50,000 in the bank, right? We gotta do all that. I end up having, you know, you fast forward, I'm skipping over a lot, but um, I shut down several years ago, I shut down my agency at peak revenue because I was unfulfilled and I hated it. And so that next year you'd think, well, now that I shut down my agency, now that the revenue takes a hit, now you certainly don't travel, right? One of the first things we did, five and a half, half weeks in Europe. People said, well, that's irresponsible. That's crazy. Now you got to save your money. Best thing we ever did. And a month later, um, because I, I did speaking, I, I was out in Cairo, Egypt, visiting the pyramids. So that, that happened with like in a two month period. So I all equate it with, listen, you know, I, there's, there's what I call an abundance mindset. I, not just me. I didn't coin these phrases, abundance mindset and a scarcity mindset. And 100%. for so long, even when I had the money, I wasn't truly free because I spent my life wanting to hoard and wait instead of truly live. And I paid the price and my family paid the price as well. Totally. I, I really live by that. And it has nothing to do with the cash in the bank. I've worked with multimillionaires who have a scarcity mindset and people who 
barely have five figures in the bank, um, if that much, and who live in an right. abundance mindset. And they always, they do what they love. They do what they want. They live the life they want. And, and so many people who are sitting on so much money, because I think there's this, this fallacy in Western culture that, you know, when I have the money, then I'll have the life. And it doesn't work like that because you never right. have it. There's, um, so I'm, I'm Orthodox Jewish, and there's a Hebrew saying that goes, yesh lo rotsem atayim. Right. He who has a hundred wants 200. Right. Always. Yep. So when you hit 50 K, well, now I need a hundred. When you hit hundred, you're like, well, now I obviously need half a million. <laughs> obviously. Right, right. And I remember this in my teens. I remember in my teens when I earned my first thousand dollars. I, and I remember having heard this line and thinking as a teenager, that a thousand dollars is so much money. Right. <laughs> like, right. wow. Like that's a crazy amount of money and getting that thousand being like, okay, but now I need two. And then I could take that trip that I've been meaning to take with my friends. And everything goes up, oh my God, it's true. He who has one wants two. Like that, that's really it. Um, so I love this. I was like, what did this agency do that, that you had? It was uh, PR and advertising. I worked uh, with a lot of associations, um, corporations, healthcare companies, and um, did a lot of, well, we started out doing straight PR. Mm -hmm. And then we, uh, we adapted as we went, did a lot of online advertising toward the end, online engagement. And, you know, because I had that, listen, I love money. And I think, you know, you are someone who likes money as well, right? I but, am. It's true. I don't think money is evil. I think money is yeah. powerful. And I think every power can be used for good or bad. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with money. Just use it well. And you got to look at it the right way. I mean, I had a bad relationship with money. You know, one thing was I never had enough, right? And what that caused me to do the first four or five years of my having my agency was, okay, you set your retainer at this, but then someone comes in far below it and you're like, well, I need that money because I never have enough money. So I take it for the $1,500 retainer instead of the $9,000 retainer and all that. And so what I ended up with was a lot of clients, but I was grinding I was miserable. I worked from home and I still was never at least mentally present with my wife and kids. And I felt like I was never physically present. So I wanted to give it up. So I ended up firing half my clients, increasing my prices and hiring a team around me. And I doubled my revenue the next year. And it sounds counterintuitive and it's scary as heck to do. But you know, if you don't do that and if you don't make that investment and don't shift that mindset to one of, I'm only gonna work with people who value me or are gonna pay me what I'm worth, then you're going to end up grinding and never truly reaching your potential as a business owner. Totally. A hundred percent. And I, I sit with people like this all day, right? Like I just put out on my Instagram, raise your self-worth in order to raise your net worth, right? Because yeah. you can't, because you can never be bigger than yourself. You can never earn more than you, you think you can, right? And it's right. our own income ceiling we hit every time. We think it's someone else's, but it's not. It's only our own. Um, and I actually just sat with someone, I think it was last week, who was complaining about um, his accounts receivable. And uh, I basically said to him, listen, you have kids. You're a parent also, right? How yes, old are your kids? Yes. Uh, we have four kids. So five, eight, 11, and 13. Oh, wow. Okay. So we're super yeah. similar. I I've got five kids and two, six, nine, 11, 13. There you go. Yeah. So I just, I, I put a bonus baby in there. Awesome. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> For my end. Um, so as a parent, I always say, if you let the kids leave in the living room, don't be, com don't complain that there's crumbs in the carpet. Right. right? So if you're going to let your clients step all over you and they're not going to pay in time and you're going to keep working with them, don't complain that they don't pay on time. You let them, you want to put your foot down. Yeah. You, they might not work with you. They might not hire you because you're making them pay before, you know, you do any more work for them. 
but you, you can't have it both ways. You right. either choose to be stepped on or you choose not to, and it's only you. And, and, and you set that, uh, Oren Claff, who's just, um, I think it's actually Claff, I mispronounced his last name, but he, um, uh, wrote a book that was, is like required reading when I, my agency days pitch anything in Silicon Valley. It's kind of like the required book to read. And I've heard he has, of this book. I haven't read it a, yet. He has a follow-up book, Flip the Script, where he actually talks about a sales, uh, uh, I guess, principle or whatever you want to call it. And it's called, in, he calls it Inception, just like the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, where you make the buyer, you fee- make the buyer feel and they do that they have total autonomy and that's their decision to buy. But in the book, or on my podcast, actually, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that and setting that right from the get-go. And, you know, the notion that a lot of customers, you know, humans want what they can't have. And if you start setting that tone right from the beginning, you know, there's a lot of people who will play that uh, that game where you have the call, the sales call at 10, it's 10.03, it's 10.05 and 10.07. And Oren said, you know, 10.07 is that barrier. And it's like that point of no return because if you wait, they know they got you. They know that you need it so bad that you're going to stay on the phone. He's like, but if you don't do it, then it's like, okay, you know, and, and, and it's always a risk to take. But right from the get-go, when you set the expectations with your client, it's very Pavlovian, right? And along the way, you know, if you answer your client's emails at 11 p.m., they will email you at 11 p.m. But you know you what happens? You them. Yeah, 100%. exactly, exactly. And- you absolutely cannot complain. And if you answer something within 30 seconds of it landing in your inbox, do not complain that when it takes you two hours, people are like, where are you? Oh my gosh, right. I can't get out of my email. Dude, who created this? Yep. Yeah. And totally. I teach I teach parenting strategies to my um to my clients to manage their clients and staff. I have this whole like business of parenting client management thing. Um and why not kill two birds with one stone? You know, parent entrepreneurs like we're busy, <laughs> right? So, like why not do both at once? But listen, if I if I spoon feed my kids everything. If every time they need something, I hand them and I never make them think and I never make them do. The fact that my kids can't do anything without me right. is my fault, not theirs. There's, um, it's interesting uh, that you bring that up in, in terms of, um, I had a, someone who, I just did a productivity accelerator and someone was in it blaming their boss for making them unproductive and it was their boss's fault. Um, now, I don't know. I wasn't in this situation. The boss may be a total jerk. But in this specific instance, I said, okay, why is your boss making you productive? Well, she sends me all these emails at all times. And I, re- <laughs> I have to reply to them all the time. And I'm like, do you know that she expects you to reply to her emails right away? Well, I just know she does. Have you talked about it? Well, no. How do you know she does? I just know. Like, could it be that she's like me and sending emails is almost like note-taking? you know, where you get it down. He's like, oh, I never thought of that. Because one of the things I did early on was I actually did a poll. This was before LinkedIn's in his current form. I did it on LinkedIn. And I think I did it email. And it was about 40 people responded. Friends, colleagues, you know, lawyers, association people, doctors, teachers. What do you think is the um, reasonable amount of time to reply to emails? Because I was- Ooh, I like this poll. All okay. the time. And I noticed these other- consultants from my same clients never respond. And I'm like, well, that's disrespectful. But then I'm like, maybe I'm the stupid one. So I did this. So the average came out. There were some people that were 24 hours. Was that, you know, there were some people who were like half hour, came out to about two and a half hours. And so I was the person who would constantly email all the time. Now this was, this was probably back uh, 2013, 2014 when I did this. Um, 
and it came out. To, so I started doing it. So I started batch checking emails. And when I responded to it and I tell people, you know what happened? And they're like, oh, did your clients rebel? Did you? And I said, no, absolutely nothing happened. Everyone learned <laughs> that they're like, okay, he's not going to respond for two and a half hours. If it is an emergency, I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to call him. But a lot of what you know, people think are productivity problems, I find out are communication problems because it's like they assume that their boss wants them to answer the emails. And it's like, well, why don't you have a talk with your boss about when they, it, it, there's a better than half chance or 50% chance your boss is like, no, I'm just sending you those to keep, you know, whatever. Now your boss maybe should say, hey, I'm sending this, don't act on it till tomorrow. But you have to take accountability for it. And, you know, a lot of folks never talk to their, I know we're talking about kind of more corporate people than entrepreneurs, but don't have those discussions. No, but this applies to entrepreneurs speaking to their staff in the reverse, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's very applicable. Exactly. Because yeah. I, I would consider it instead of a communications issue or, or in addition to that, it's a boundary issue. And and it's a, yeah. it's, it's a personal fear or self-worth issue. Like if I don't do this, they'll let me go. Right, right. Right. No, sorry, and it, it boils down to that at the end of the day very often. No, 100%. And, and there's a, I had another client who was talking about, um, you know, she did a 360 review and she thought she was hitting all her outcomes and it didn't look that way on the 360 review and all this. And I said, well, what, what are the outcomes you need to achieve? And so she said it. I said, okay, do you think those are the same or different than the outcomes your boss wants you to achieve? And she's like, you know what? I have no idea. Like <laughs> sit down. And so whether it's the, the guy who was having, you know, thought his boss wanted to reply to the emails or, you know, the outcomes discussion, a lot of folks, and I, I actually find this, uh, I had some clients who wanted to make a change, but they, they're, my husband doesn't want to move to Charlotte. And it turned out they'd never actually had the discussion. It was communication by passive aggressive comment. Oh, where, hate you know, it was like, hate of that. course they want me to reply to the emails. Well, have you asked her? No. No, ask her, you know, hundred percent, hundred percent. Because we set expectations in our own head. We assume that the expectations we set in our head are the other person's and then we act upon them. And then the worst is when people passive aggressively rebel against the expectations that were only in their own head to begin with. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And then the other person, and, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be fair women, right? I get to say this, I'm female. We are, we are the worst culprits. Not me, of course, never me. Um, <laughs> I feel like women do this much more often, right? Because we're just like, very men, women, like you, you get into your own head, you get into your own space. Um, I actually had someone on the team, on my team, like she was freaking out because she had gotten some expectation into her head that I wanted from her. And she's like, but I won't be able to have this done by the deadline and whatever. I was like, I'm sorry, did I ever give you that deadline? She's like, no, I'm like, do you think that I think you could do A, B, C, D, and E by this deadline? She's like, oh, I never actually thought that through. I'm like, do I look stupid that I would think <laughs> anyone could get that done in that time? But you get into your own head, this right. expectation, and then you freak out. So, okay, hang on. We never even got to hear where you came from. We got Chicago, <laughs> but you are obviously very skilled, very knowledgeable um, in, in all of this. Where did you start this? I know it's completely like not where we were heading, but I, I want to know, where, I like knowing where people came from. Before you started a PR and advertising agency, before you got to get a deep understanding of people and started to learn law of attraction and all this fun abundance and scarcity and all this stuff, which you obviously have now, none of us started here. <laughs> this stuff was not right. popular when we were growing up. Where'd you come from? Um, yeah, so I, well, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. My whole family's from New York. Um, 
went to school and I had a high school teacher who would get on desks and stand on desks and uh, was awesome, Ed Knoll, you know, and he got us, he got me so excited about politics. And I was like, I'm going to save the world, you know, and his politics were different than mine, but it was still that notion of this is how you save the world, going to politics. So I went to, I went to University of Iowa and I'm like, I'm going to get involved with it. I ran a political campaign on the, on the, uh, I got involved anywhere I could. I, and then I did a number of internships. I'm like, well, public relations is the best way to get into politics and all that. So I interned in DC and in New York, I did all that. And I came out and I was smarter than everyone when I came out of school. So I thought, I'm not going to go work as a junior account executive. I'm going to go get like a number two job. So I searched out these like public affairs, public relations firms, you know, and I found one and they're like, you are going to be it. Like it's a husband wife thing. We're going to give you so much, you know, that was my first experience with a toxic workplace. And it was just weird. And I, I ended up quitting. I worked, I worked for a nonprofit. I left that nonprofit because um, I found out some weird things were going on between certain people in the office. I'll leave it at that. Um, I left there. I actually just walked out on a Saturday morning, went in, collected my stuff, left them a note because oh, wow. I felt that's what they deserved. And uh, took a job at another like really small nonprofit because I had no money. Literally, my office was in a closet, and uh, I was doing PR and fundraising for him, and it was a speech and hearing clinic, and there was no reason in heck that I should have taken the job there. Like, it was a big pay cut, and the only reason I did it, it was on the south side of Chicago, worked in a closet, was um, I needed the money, and I'm like, well, I'm going to be the head of fundraising and marketing, you know, it's like, a, it's <laughs> I love that. I love it. Yeah. You get to put that on your resume, but you work in a closet, you get paid peanuts, you do grunt work, but Hey, business card looks good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I get to be friends with, so there's all these speech therapists there. So it did like sliding scale, uh, hearing aids for, uh, seniors who couldn't afford them. Well, or anyone, kids who couldn't, afford, you know, uh, and speech. And so I met, I befriended this, uh, same age. She was a speech therapist. Um, and I only stayed in that job about 10 months. There were, you know, there was really no reason to do it except to meet her because she ended up becoming my wife. That's awesome. And, Aww, I love so I actually quit and then I, I, I left that job. We, we kind of dated and then broke up, you know, I left the job. We didn't really know we see each other. We, by like total happenstance, right. Moved two blocks away from each other and like ran into each other. And so then rekindled it. And like literally six months later, we were engaged on the canal in, in Venice Aww. and then got married. I love so, that story. Um, yeah. But hold so on. I think I must've missed a beat somewhere. How did we go from government and PR to random nonprofits? Because um, that first toxic job, I just got out. I, that was it. You know, and you were I had just done, done and you were done with the industry also. Um, well, not really. I just needed money. And so okay. I was like, okay, I started looking for, you know, when you're in a toxic job, sometimes, um, and this is a problem. And this is <laughs> a lot of my clients, I work with this, you know, they're, we're in the middle of working together and they're in the job they hate, right? And they, they have this dream or they don't have a dream, but let's say they have a dream of, of something they want to do. But in the middle of working together, they're like, I have this job offer, I'm going to take it. Well, wait a second, does that fit the vision you have for your life? No, but, and I said, well, just because the landscaping is better at that prison, doesn't mean it's not still a prison. <laughs> that is such a good line. <laughs> you know, it's like you're going to jump over there and make a permanent, a long-term decision because let's uh, you're going to you're going to go and work 
it's going to take six months of onboarding. Then you're going to feel a responsibility to stay there a year. Now you've put yourself a year behind. I said, you're better off to take a job at Starbucks. If you really need the money, go get a job working someplace. Not that Starbucks baristas don't care about the world and everything, but I'm saying- No, and they're uh, saving the world one cup at a time. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, no comment. But they, but they, you know, they'll, they'll, um, so, so anyway, so that's what I did. I gotta got to get out. It. And so I, they offered me a job at this one nonprofit. I took it. Uh, I don't really want to do that. So I did another one. So I ended up leaving. Um, so when I left that job, I actually got a job at a real life corporate PR agency working on clients that I really liked. Um, and uh, I, I really liked it. I still had that political dream in the back of my head. My wife and I get engaged, going through it. I get a job, an, a job offer, taking a big pay cut with no- There's a lot uh, of pay cuts here. How do you have any money in <laughs> Yeah, I, I did. Well, living at your parents' house helps. Um, I hear that. And I was like, you know, um, I'm gonna take it. It was a US Senate campaign. There was a likelihood that it wasn't gonna go much further than four months ahead. But I was like, you know what? This is what I want to do. I'm going to do it. And my fiance, my, now my wife, she was like, go do it. In the middle of getting married, she's like, let's go do it. So we did it. The guy lost, right? But I did a really bang up job. And within 24 hours, I had a call. We want you to come out to DC to work on Capitol Hill for a congressman who's running for US Senate. So I was like, this is it. So literally, we got married. We went on the honeymoon and then moved to DC. And so we were out there. I didn't like Capitol Hill. It was boring. I, I it, you know, it, certainly people would say it's not boring now. I just was kind of done with that. Worked in the association world, got a good job. So just break was, down for the audience associations. Yeah. You and I know what they are. Not everybody's familiar with the whole bubble. Yeah. So the associations that I worked with were uh, member organizations of corporations that came together to. Push, an in, uh, uh, push their issues before Congress. Uh, I was, well, I guess I did register to lobby once because I had to go to a meeting. Um, and, uh, you know, lobbying organizations get a bad rap in many cases, rightfully so. But the people I know that work at these organizations are people who, I mean, it was like the grocery manufacturers, they make food, you know, people who work at variety. Uh, there's, you know, think of the, me the medical uh, society, the American Medical Association. That's an association. Um, they serve their members. Some cases they lobby Congress. They do a number of things. So I worked in there doing uh, public relations, um, PR, advocacy uh, for about four years. Well, I, I worked at two different associations. And I came back. My father, my dad looms large in my life. He was my hero. Um, just uh, worked on the space program worked, uh, designed fighter jets, led the team that designed all the electronic switches on the Boeing 777. I used to have it behind so me. So cool. Over here, he's got a patent for the switch on the, on the Boeing uh, 777. Oh, wow. And so he was my hero. And I came back actually in 2005 to see the White Sox uh, World Series. I flew back from DC and I spent a lot of time with my dad. Actually that same weekend, we went to, uh, Notre, he went to the University of Notre Dame. So we went to Notre Dame game, spent a lot of time with him. And I came back and I'm like, something's not right with dad. And, you know, and um, my wife, um, was she pregnant at that time? Yes, she was pregnant at that time. And she was not of the DC world. It's just one of those things where, you know, you go different places in Chicago, what neighborhood are you from? In DC, where do you work? 
for? Who do you work for? I'm in Charleston, South Carolina now. And the, the biggest question we get when we go here is like, what church do you go to? So it's interesting <laughs> at all these different places. Every, every space, totally. So we, we moved back to Chicago. And I said, that's it. I'm starting my own job business. I was 28 years old, 27, 28. I said, that's it. I'm starting it. Uh, I got four clients right off the bat. Um, I signed up the association that I was working for, signed up, up as a client. There was an allied association, signed them up, got two other clients. Um, we moved back, started looking for a house, uh, started working my clients, building it. Um, so what did it do? This there. was the beginning of the agency. So what did it mean? Again, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a marketing generalist. So yeah. when you say PR and advertising, what did that mean in this space? What were you doing for them? So when it started off, it was a lot of uh, just pitching, working the phones, writing press releases, calling media, getting uh, some of them were associations. Uh, and then we started to work with companies. A couple of years later into it, we had a big healthcare corporation that uh, needed some crisis communications. Okay. And so we did a number of things like their CEO was a former special forces guy and they were headquartered in New Orleans. And this was a, two years after Katrina. And he found out he was listening to the news and found out that the police officers didn't have bulletproof vests and they were getting gunned down. Oh, wow. He called a buddy. He had, he had these friends. It was kind of like, you know, a show where he's like, he gets off the phone and we're sitting there and he turns around. And he's like, yeah, uh, I got like 50 bulletproof vests that are getting donated. It's like, I don't want to know who you called, you know, but so, you know, we did, we did uh, set up the, the press conference for that. Um, okay. Around that time, you know, some of the, some of the, the crisis communications, it was funny thinking back to then, it was like Facebook wasn't around, Twitter wasn't around. It was like, they're getting attacked in uh, Yahoo message groups or whatever chat groups. <laughs> And so I was like, oh my gosh. And so it's like, our big thing was we started a company blog because it was content to fight back against content. Um, and then it started morphing into more social. Uh, and then we got really probably around 2009, 2010, really into um, really targeted data-driven online advertising. And um, that was probably the bulk of what we did. A lot of video content uh, for the remainder of the time at the agency. For what purpose, though? Again, these associations, they, they're drawing membership. So are you there to build their reputation? Are you there to build, to grow membership for them? Kind of what, what are the goals in that space? Yeah, so it really depended on, on what I specialized in was issues. So they represented um, a number of issues in terms of, uh, uh, are, would, would some say they're in the political space? Perhaps. Um, but for instance, uh, so one association uh, fought back against lawsuit abuse in terms of, you know, uh, the maker of brake pads, who is a mom and pop brake pad shop, family owned shop, and they happen to buy another brake pad company. Well, unbeknownst to them, 40 years ago, that brake pad company had been owned or had owned a company where someone had gotten sick due to asbestos, right? Like 30 or 40 years ago. Oh my gosh. And so now that guy's gonna come and sue the mom the and pop. Break, the new Exactly. That's terrible. Um, and there was a lot of like, we promoted a movie called Injustice about all these heavy duty uh, trial lawyers. And it, by the way, this is not against all trial lawyers or anything, but one bribed a judge over Hurricane Katrina litigation. Um, one, um, class action uh, in terms of securities fraud, all these different things. So it was highlighting that. Um, 
but I also had other clients. I had this healthcare client that was having this crisis, these crisis communications, um, and even worked with some folks to. Uh, have what does like that mean, crisis communications? Because I feel like the, the PR world, and again, like you know, I, I cater to micro business owners. And I know you work sure. with a lot of also like in a, in a similar realm. PR to, to people in that space means like getting an article in a magazine, you right, know? Right, right. Um, and I feel like this, the corporate level PR, and I think it's important for everyone to understand all the nuances. This is communications. This is how you present yourself um, when you're in the public eye. It trickles down into the micro business space. But so when you talk crisis communications, what does that mean? I'll give two examples. Um, one was from my early days because I, I ended up being in that crisis mode. And actually, when I, I along the way, I would be farmed out. Uh, my PR firm would be farmed out to work on political campaigns too. And in some cases, I was sent out. This campaign is um, on life support and it's 10 days before. You need to go in there and start yelling at people and getting it. And, and sometimes, you know, I was making enemies because I would go into a campaign and it was like totally unproductive. They didn't know what was going on. Their messaging sucked. And I would basically, and sometimes with one or two other people from different PR firms who had a reputation, we would come in and we were like, all right, you're not talking to the press anymore. I'm talking to the press. This person's doing, you know. But early on, when I worked for a PR firm, there was a, um, we had a client that was the local natural gas utility. Right. And they kind of go along and people get their gas bill and nothing happens. Right. And they had a lot of employees. And um, years before, uh, they had done tests. Uh, it, people used to have, I don't even remember when this was like this, but in older homes, like your meter, like your gas meter, you know, the meter man who goes around and checks mm -hmm. your meter would be inside houses. Oh. Huh. And what happened was years before, a bunch of these meter men and women, or I can't remember the exact details of it, like spilled mercury oh my in gosh. the homes. And mercury, I used to know all this stuff, way too much stuff about mercury. It had a half-life of whatever. So it yeah. literally would sit there for like 10, 15 years. Well, they found out about this. It exploded in the, in the area of Chicago. Not, not literally exploded. It, it was, right. it was the, a big the story. The issue exploded. Like, like where, when your phone blows up. It doesn't exactly. blow up. Exactly. Yes, yes. So, so the, the, the gas, you t next thing you know is pictures on the news of, remember E.T. with the guy in the E.T. suit with the plastic over the house? Like yeah. people in suburban Chicago are being bought hotel rooms. They have to go live in a hotel because oh now there's gosh. people in white hazmat suits doing all this. The attorney general is filing an investigation. It's all this stuff. And then of course, everyone wants to blow it up and say, well, they're evil and people should go to jail. And it was like, people didn't know about it. It was like the meter man, whatever. So we were there to try and help with that from uh, press to, um, you know, someone went out, it's like the lawyer is out there saying things that like, Basically, he has no patience for the media. Why is your lawyer talking to the media? <laughs> you know, why are you, you know? And then there was, you know, the, the um, because then people were like, if you're an employee, one of the hundreds or thousands of employees they had, they were like under attack, the employees. And they were feeling, they were asked to work extra hours and, and, and do all this. And so one of the things we did was we did a whole employee communications program where I literally went around with a photographer and, um, and interviewed like I was a journalist, people for their employee magazine about all the, these are incredible superheroes. And they had felt like they had never been appreciated. And now they were getting this recognition of the person who worked with these families to make sure that they were taken care of in the hotels and all this. And 
and so so that was one example. The other example was this other this healthcare organization who their prior owner um, had they got first of all they were a company uh, that had um, let, let's just say they 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 they, they had a lot of clients in the healthcare field around the company and one of the things they did was all their uh, like uh, accounts receivable and at the end of the week they would sweep their computers and pay everyone. This specific company happened to locate their data center in New Orleans. Not a good place to locate a data center because when a hurricane hits, when Katrina hit, like all these people around the country couldn't pay their people and oh do their gosh. computers. Uh, who well, puts data centers in New Orleans? Like well, this is- owner apparently was, you know, he had started it and grew it to a $300 million company. He did that. Then he, there was a lot of, so that was the, the big part of it. But then I, there was, I, I wasn't there yet, but there was some underhanded things he did. There was a lot of lawsuits from former members. Uh, lawyers were doing things to get people and we think some fake people in Yahoo message groups to attack them. And we're like, all right. So the company went private, got bought by an entire, a new ex firm, brought in a new CEO. And they're like, we are getting incoming, like incoming fire on us every day. What do we have to do? And it's like, all right, let's look like, what's going on here? Let's be radically transparent. We started a blog where just, they just started talking about everything, not just related to the lawsuits and all that, but like the employee, like the, 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 uh, the hot dog eating contest they had on a Friday to raise money for their employee who had cancer. Um, you know, those types of things, the, the donation to the local police department of bulletproof vests, just showing and, and, and we started to short up and show here's what we're doing. Here's what we've been accused of here's the truth and here's what we're doing to rectify it with their existing customers. So it was in, those are two examples of crisis communications um, in which uh, uh, like we were called in. So Got it. I um, like that. And I, and I feel like that, you know, again, on a corporate scale, you obviously need like a company and a whole bunch of people to manage this and direct it. Um, but just that little piece, can you say that again? Here's what we've been accused of. And that was the other, there were two things that came out. Yeah, that. here's what you've been accused of. Here's the truth about what happened. And here's what we're doing to make things better. That, that. And I feel like every, every micro business, micro business owner, thinking faster than my mouth can go. Again, <laughs> I do that a lot. Um, has at some point in their business, a vendor, a colleague, most often a client who sees or perceives something they did as evil, ill-intentioned, whatever you want to call it. I feel like these three pieces, and I'm sure you do bring it down to your clients, but I feel like that is gold, right? Well, when someone comes yeah. at you, would you would you embellish upon that? Or would you say that's kind of the three-step process? When someone comes at you, accusatory, or you make a mistake, an honest mistake, or you don't make a mistake, someone thinks you do, whatever it is, doesn't matter. Or, or you make a little mistake and someone thinks it's a really big mistake, or you make a really big mistake, it doesn't matter. But like, I love that. This uh, is the communication path. Yeah. So some of the, there's a couple of thoughts I have on that. Some which, which will probably get me in trouble. But um, the first thought is, you know, when I talk about the lawyers, you know, the lawyers just want to, we're shutting up. We're not saying anything that could, we're, we're pleading the fifth, right? And it's like, or they want to speak in legalese that no one understands. And it's like, well, if you have nothing to hide, then you have nothing to hide. And let's get ahead of it and be, and be radically transparent. And, it, and it's a fine balance between radically transparent. And, and there are certainly things that could get, you, you don't want to say, right? If something's involved, you can't say because 
it's in litigation or whatever. So you want to be transparent and be truthful. I would say the interesting piece is, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, those are the three points. I wouldn't embellish other than to say, I see in this day and age uh, where it doesn't matter how truthful you are or what you're doing to rectify something. In many cases, we want to call it cancel culture, call it what it is. You have no ability to tell the truth and here's what we're doing to rectify it. You're ruined, you're canceled, you're done, that's it. And um, it's an interesting, um, even with some people who who deserve what they get, it's embellished and it's like, uh, now when they try to tell the truth, well, you're just fighting back and you're just attacking people. I think, I think, I think the realm of what has become, uh, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Let me just say over the next five or 10 years, because um, the ability to do two and three points, two and three, sometimes people just don't care about it. If that totally. I'm thinking so much more micro scale. Like I'm thinking really like one-on-one interpersonal. Like I'm not even thinking when it gets to legal, like obviously you have to have to consult with your lawyer because right. you know, don't be an idiot. Um, but right. I'm thinking just interpersonally, right? Um, you, you didn't meet a deadline that you were meant to meet, right? And this yeah, is not a right, multi-million right. dollar contract. It might sure. be a $300 contract or a $3,000 yeah. contract or a $30,000 contract, right? Like, let, let, let's go up to that scale. And and you didn't do what you were meant to do or something was a misunderstanding. Like, you know, and then everyone gets on defensive and everyone's like, no, I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. And everyone right. gets afraid of not getting what they want. And just to come out and say, listen, here's what it sounds like you're upset about, right? Because here's what we've been accused of. And it says, you're, you're, it's like, okay, you're telling us that, you know, you expected this by X deadline and it's not ready. Yeah. And you were promised that it was ready. So let's just, let's put the facts on the table. This is what we've been accused of. Great. Here's the truth on our end. We had an understanding in the contract that it was a six month window with sure. a three month intention and we're going to hit it at month five, right? And let, let's just look at the words. When we say intent, it doesn't mean deadline. You know, it's like kind of just right. going through that. Um, but here's what we're going to do to fix it for you. Yeah. You know, and just just having that be the flow, I think would 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 save so many people from ever getting to lawyers. Yeah, and you know, I, you have to. Um, there are there, listen. There's jerks in this world, right? No matter what you do, they're going to be that way, and. That's why you can never let on Twitter. it. What's sorry. that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was... <laughs> no, what did I you said, say? Don't hang... I said, don't hang out on oh, Twitter. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I you know. It has the largest concentration of, of... of trolls of oh my any gosh. social media platform. No social no, media. No, I agree. No one, no one else has as the, the trolls congregate because it's so easy to vilify and it's so fast and it goes so big, so fast. Like I talk about social media as a party and each different platform is a different kind of party. So I always say LinkedIn is a networking event. That's why it's my favorite, possibly my tears too. Instagram's the coffee shop. People sitting at tables with pretty pictures on the walls, chat, chat, chatting, very shallow. Facebook's the reunion. That's why no one likes to connect to people that they don't already know from high school, from college, from that event they had, from that group they're part of. Um, <laughs> and Twitter is a street corner, which is where all the gossip spreads, which is where everyone will like say something, say a bar, move on. But that's how it just goes wildfire, right? Yeah. It doesn't, nothing else is like that. So anyone who doesn't want to be vilified, stay off Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, 
I always had a, a rule of, I never wanted to let it get down to, um, and, and again, I'm talking about, it could be a $300 issue, it could be whatever, let it get down to, he said, he said, or he, she said, she said, or he said, she said. I would always, and some people said, well, pick up the phone. Why don't, why don't you be more personal? I said, because I'm putting this sucker down in writing. I want a paper trail of everything because the amount of things, uh, you know, going back to, you know, working in the corporate world or the nine to five, the amount of people who are trying to cover their butts and would throw you under, like, I just learned, put everything in everything writing. In writing. Um, I would even do that. And some people would be like, you know, I fired a client and I did it in email. And they're like, well, that's, that's not nice to do it in an email. It's not to do it that. I said, listen, I know how you are. And so I put it in an email so you know exactly the bullet points because I didn't want to, you know, and, and I said, we're talking on the phone now. You just wanted to talk on the phone to yell at me. So, you know, I got it. But, but it's, it's incredibly important. You know, you set those expectations. You have to be crystal clear up front, whether you have a contract or whatever. And then along the way, set those expectations. Again, don't communicate by passive aggressive comment. Set those expectations as you go so you're protected. And in the end, there are going to be people who try to cover their butts and are jerks. And in that regard, it's, you just got to say bye. You got to work look out for yourself. Totally. That's a great quote from one of my early, earlier guests. Um, I just looked it up with episode 29 with Tyson Franklin. And his quote, I always think about people with integrity expect to be believed. And if not, let time prove them right. Right. So yeah. it won't be instantaneous. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to part one of this episode. Stay tuned for part two going live Thursday. And of course, subscribe. You do not want to miss this. Thank you.